Well, good evening, everyone. Let me add my welcome uh, to Joel's. Uh, my name's Rod. If you are visiting, it's great to have you here in this holiday period. And we're kicking off, as you've heard, a series in the parables, which will run for the next four Sundays, uh, starting tonight and looking at this uh, parable of the vineyard workers. Um, the subtitle, as you can see, is Stories That Read Us. And I think that's true. Uh, we'll see that over these four weeks, that often these are well-known passages that we've heard perhaps many times if we've been a Christian for some time. And yet the sting in the tail is often uh, bigger than we think as we reflect on what it is that God's saying and sharpening our thinking about his ways. So I pray that that will be uh, the case tonight as we look at um, this parable together. Uh, so let me pray for us and ask that God will help us as we um, come to this passage. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you uh, for your word to us. Uh, we acknowledge that you reveal yourself through it and ultimately through the person of your son, the Lord Jesus. And we pray tonight that even if this is a passage familiar to us, that you might challenge us afresh, that you might help us to see uh, your wondrous grace anew, uh, that you would help us to live in the light of it and indeed to respond to it more fully. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's just not fair. You see, it's not fair. How many times have you heard a child exclaim that when they were asked to do something that their sibling apparently was not? I'm sure I've mouthed those words many times to my parents as they grew up and they got sick of it. Of course, as an eldest child, I'm sure you'll agree if you're an eldest child, we've got to be the trailblazers, you know, that do things first. And well, those that follow, who knows whether they'll ever follow the rules that were established for us. Now, of course, if you're further down the line in the siblings, you probably disagree with that completely and you think, ah, oh, look, you know, it gets hard for us younger ones. Whatever the case uh, in your life, I think we can think of examples of, you know, so-called injustice or unfairness. And those are largely trivial things, aren't they? Um, they're not significant in the bigger scheme of this world. But we can think in our world of huge injustices, uh, things that cut a lot more deeply let me give you one Australian example from just a few years ago. Uh, it's about a guy whose diligent work for his company actually led to his death. I'm talking about Bernie Banton. He was that anti-asbestos campaigner whose courage and resolve justifiably created a PR disaster for James Hardy Industries. He recognized an injustice and from a position of no power, he fought and fought and fought. He became the public face of a six-year battle to establish a compensation fund that would uh, help those victims of asbestos-related diseases caused by products made by his former company. And eventually it led to the establish of a establishment of a $4 billion fund uh, to compensate thousands. And his motivation was uh, his friends, other work colleagues who he saw um, you know, face difficult diseases, many of them having their lives cut short because of working uh, for James Hardy. Often cancer-related uh, deaths. But it was a cruel irony um, that as he got towards the end of that campaign and a fund was established, established in 2007, he discovered that he too had abdominal cancer and would die. Uh, he had worked from 1968 to 1974 at one of the worst plants in Western Sydney in Camellia. And he thought he'd been one of the luckier ones. He had asbestosis and another asbestos-related disease, but they weren't going to end his life. However, abdominal cancer did not have the same prognosis for him. 
And you may remember as he sort of spoke to our nation, as it were, from his hospital bed in August of 2007, saying how he was shattered that he was now facing what many of his colleagues had faced that he'd fought so long for. It just seemed a cruel twist of fate at the end. And he died just a couple of months later in November that year. It just seemed very unfair for a bloke who was determined to fight for justice for everybody else. Well, the question of what is fair is a theme that comes out quite strongly in our parable that we're considering tonight as Jesus tells his disciples this story because a parable is a constructed story which has a spiritual meaning or teaching to it. And this story that Christ unfolds for his followers has workers who cry foul about you know, unfair wages, grumbling about what had unfolded. And on face value as we read it, they seem to have a point. And so our big question tonight is this, why does merit not count in God's kingdom? Why does merit not count in God's kingdom, despite those that complain in the story? Now, before we get to answering that question, we've really got to consider the context of this parable. And the context comes in the previous chapter, as so often it does. The second half of chapter 19 in Matthew, there's the story of the rich young man. You may know this story well also. Uh, Jesus spent some time discussing with him, but in the end, he walks away sadly, unwilling to give up his great wealth in order to follow Christ. And Jesus then reflects on that moment with his disciples and says how hard it is for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. And as he says those words, the disciples are shocked because in their mind, surely a person's only rich because God has blessed them. Surely such a person is in favor with God. They'll be in the front row seat in heaven if that's the way it works because surely they've got great chance and so Peter's like well who can be saved and then he asked Jesus well we've left everything so what then will there be for us verse 27 of chapter 19 Peter's interested in what their reward would be now Jesus responds to his question and he says in verse 28 that there's a spiritual reward they would judge or rule with Jesus in heaven and in verse 29, he goes on to say that those who have given up things for the kingdom will receive a hundred times as much and indeed inherit eternal life. But this talking and thinking about meriting rewards by his disciples leads to Jesus telling this parable that we're going to consider tonight. Jesus had made it clear that there would be eternal rewards for all who respond to the call to discipleship to everyone who understands and accepts the sacrifices it involves to follow Christ. But the fact that Peter could ask the question, effectively, what's in it for us, was evidence that they hadn't fully grasped God's way of doing things. And this is why Jesus immediately told this story of the laborers in the vineyard. You see, in chapter 19, at the end of it in verse 30, he talks about the first being last and the last being first. And that is the end of the parable that we've just seen in chapter 20, verse 16. It shows the connection between these two sections of Scripture. That Jesus is telling this parable in response to what unfolded in his discussion with the rich young man. Well, let's turn and consider this parable that we've got before us tonight then and see that the first answer to our question of why merit doesn't count in the kingdom of God is because it's all about God's generous grace. It's all about God's generous grace. Have a look with me again at verses 1 to 4. Notice how it starts. For the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner 
who went out in the early morning to hire men to work in his vineyard. He agreed to pay them a denarius for the day, and he sent them into his vineyard. About the third hour, he went out and saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing, and he told them, well, you also go and work in my vineyard, and I will pay you whatever is right. See, in the opening section of this parable, in verses 1 to 7, um, we get the context laid out for us. There's a number of workers who are hired or selected, chosen by the landowner. They're in the marketplace. And the first workers are picked up at dawn or 6 a.m. But then we learn that the landowner goes out at 9 a.m. and then 12 noon and then 3 p.m. and even at 5 p.m., an hour before knockoff at 6, the 11th hour, he goes out and gathers more. But did you notice as that first part unfolded that only the first group employed at 6 a.m. actually had an agreement or fixed contract with the boss about what they'd be paid? Only they were promised a denarius for their day's work. And those who were sent at the third and the sixth and the ninth hours, well, they would be given a fair wage or whatever is right. But the amount is not specified, did you notice, in verse 4. And that 11th hour group at 5 p.m., well, they aren't even told that. They're not even promised payment. But there's this assumption, it seems, within the story that these workers implicitly trust the landowner, that he will do his best for them, that they will be rewarded in some way. They are called to trust the landowner as they go to work in his vineyard. Now, as we apply that to thinking about salvation and God's kingdom, uh, we need to see that in the same way when God's saving grace is offered to us, uh, the key initial response that he's looking for is trust. He wants us to trust him, the landowner. But what happens when evening comes and the day of work has been completed? 6 p.m. hits and the workers are to be paid. Uh, this is not just for the story, but this was Jewish culture. Um, in Deuteronomy 24, Leviticus 19 in the Old Testament, the workers had to be paid at the end of the day. These kind of laborers, they lived from hand to mouth. If they didn't get paid, then they may not have something to eat that night. And so it was law that everyone would be paid at day's end, 6 p.m. And so the Jewish listeners that are hearing that, indeed the disciples, are thinking, yes, of course, all the people gather, the landowner hands out the pay for the day. And so that's the next section in verses 8 to 12. We get the reaction of the workers as they receive their payment. But notice how it all begins in verse 8. It seems like the landowner calls his foreman or his paymaster, if you like, and he instructs him, notice in verse 8, call the workers and pay their wages, beginning with the last ones hired and going on to the first. Well, immediately, I think we're struck that this is a provocative payment order. Imagine if you'd been picked up to start working at 6 a.m. and then you've got to stand there at the end of the day and watch these guys that have just turned up for the last hour and they get paid first and you're going to see everybody else get paid before you are dealt with. It creates this tension, this build-up within the narrative here that, well, how is this going to unfold? And we see as the very first people are paid, those that had only worked an hour, and they get a denarius, the very thing promised those who worked a whole day, there's this expectation building. Well, what will happen when the landowner gets to the last? I think the order is also necessary if you think about it physically in terms of the storyline. Presumably, if those who got employed at 6 a.m. were paid first, they'd get their pay and run off. They'd never know what happened with those that followed. Would they get paid the same? Who would know? But this way, they see everything that unfolds. 
And this device, I guess, anticipates at the end that they're going to get more. It paves the way for their negative reaction then, doesn't it, at the end, when their hopes are dashed. They have this grumbling reaction, we might say naturally, towards the landowner or God in verse 11. And their reasoning is given in verse 12. Notice again what verse 12 says. This is key. These men who were hired last worked only one hour, they said, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the work and the heat of the day. And so they grumble, don't they? Those who'd worked all day in the blazing sun, well, it seems fair enough on face value. But this is not about you know, fair trading or the Fair Work Commission and payment of efforts duly rendered. This is a parable about the kingdom of heaven. So we need to step back for a moment and think, unlike workers' wages, salvation cannot be earned. Keep that in mind. We'll come back to that. But besides that, this complaint is like the complaint of the older brother in the parable of the prodigal son, isn't it, in Luke 15? I mean, that guy, like these workers, are victims of jealousy. They're not actually struggling with injustice, truly speaking. I mean, the employer had kept the agreement, hadn't he? He said he'd pay them a denarius, and when it got to the end of the day, they got paid a denarius, exactly as he'd promised. Laborers are unhappy because they begrudged the generosity of the landowner to others. They're not happy with his gracious kindness to others that followed. And we have to remember they were invited to serve on the first place. Whose vineyard is this? The landowner. Did he even need to pick them? No, not necessarily, but he did at 6 a.m. Are they any more worthy than others that the laborers, uh, other laborers that were picked up later? But that's not their thinking at all, is it? I think what we see is the natural sinful reaction of our world. How dare the landowner do this? Treat them like us. We did all the work. We were out there all day. What have they contributed? We should be paid more. Well, I want to ask you, has that ever been your reaction to events that have unfolded in your life? What about a reaction in your life when you think about things spiritually? See, Christians who have been upstanding citizens, perhaps lived good lives in the world's eyes, uh, they're not immune to this feeling when they think about others that perhaps have come to faith from bad backgrounds or have perhaps lived some shocking life of licentious actions and then suddenly have come to faith out of the blue and we can somehow start grading those that are working in God's vineyard that have been drawn into his kingdom and think well I'm more deserving than that person but look how long I've served the Lord you know if there's any ordering of things in heaven I should have the front row seat like these people they shouldn't be there I should be given preferential t treatment. Now, we wouldn't say it as soon as we hear it in those ways. I think we sort of recoil from such thinking. But let me test your fairness of the equality of God's salvation. Let me put it this way. If you're a believer here tonight, are you keen to see Mark Rowan in heaven? He's a British man, a former gun-running drug dealer and addict who has committed over a thousand crimes. 
He was a notorious career criminal who was constantly in and out of prison or on the run. The police, in their record-keeping these days, discovered that he was responsible for a third of the crime in Yorkshire for 15 years. He has a criminal record sheet when they print it out of their database that's over six feet long. He was one of the most wanted criminals in the region until they were finally able to convict him of one of his larger crimes, that of murder. He was known as the devil, literally, by the police, by everyone who knew him, mainly because of the large tattoo on his back. That was supposed to be a picture of the devil surrounded by his demons. And he says of himself that he should be dead. There were so many contracts taken out on his life by other gangs. He led a gang himself. His involvement in the gangs, his abuse of drugs, led to many near-death experiences. He should still be serving time in prison today, but he's been released a few years ago. And that was because in prison in the year 2000, he came to faith in Jesus. And it led to a massive change and an early release. In his autobiography, Condemned, The Transformation of a Violent Gang Leader, he describes his own life as being completely uncaringly self-destructive. A violent life lacking any purpose apart from satisfying the escalating drug habit. But God worked in his life. He brought him to faith. He's become a Christian in prison. He's now, as you can see, an associate pastor of a church in Yorkshire. Can you imagine what the locals think about that? But do you find yourself thinking about somebody like Mike Rowan or somebody else that you might think of of a similar story? How dare God let him into his vineyard? I mean, what is he thinking? That man destroyed hundreds of people's lives. He was responsible for the brutal death of people in his local area. And now he says he's a pastor. He's a Christian. How dare God do that? See, I think his story powerfully conveys the message that you can never sink so low, you can never leave it so late as to be unredeemable by God. Jesus is able to employ those who our world says is hopeless, who've been abandoned. And that leads us to the final section of our passage in verses 13 to 16, where this question of the landowner's fairness is responded to we've just seen how the workers complained well what is the response notice what the landowner says about his generosity in verse 13 and 14 but he answered one of them friend i am not being unfair to you didn't you agree to work for a denarius take your pay and go i want to give the man who was hired last the same as i gave you You see, the landowner or God has not skimped in paying the first workers what he agreed to pay. And as for the others, well, it's just sheer generosity. He chooses to treat everyone the same. They're all equal in the landowner's eyes. God's not answerable to any person about what he does with his rewards. Aren't they his to graciously give out as he sees fit? Or do we think we know better than God? Are we envious of his generosity? You know, the original Greek text in verse 15 says, Is our eye evil? 
do we look upon God's grace and we resent it? Perhaps it doesn't seem right to you that Mark Rowan will be in heaven one day. He's destroyed too many people's lives. But it's just as fair as letting you or me into heaven. It's just as fair as God paying those 11th hour workers the same amount of money. In God's gracious freedom, he does so. And it's not ours to quibble about. This parable makes it clear that we cannot resent God's unmerited kindness to others. Because your salvation, if you know Jesus as Lord and Savior and mine, is due to that same grace. We're all equal before God. Well, as we apply this all to ourselves a little bit further, I want to emphasize a second answer to our question. I posed the question at the start, why does merit not count in God's kingdom? Well, firstly, we've seen because it's all about God's grace. But secondly, it's because salvation is all about God's sovereign action. It's his choice, his action. And I think there are at least two principles that flow from that truth that we can derive. And the first is the issue of the early bird versus the latecomer that we've already touched on. You see, the highlight of this story is that there's this parallel between the generosity of God and the actions of this imaginary employer who out of sheer pity um, for the purposelessness of these others gathers more laborers into his vineyard even at the last hour pays them a full wage even though they haven't given him a full day's service merit in the kingdom of god jesus is saying is the same for all who become subject to god no matter when they come under his rule time does not matter if you like this is the parable of the thief on the cross what did the thief on the cross contribute to his salvation he hung there with nails in his arms and his legs for a few hours with jesus Jesus said to him, today you will be with me in paradise, simply on the basis of his trust in God's grace. You see, the person converted early in life is not entitled to any better treatment from God to the one who makes a deathbed confession. It doesn't work that way. God's grace is the same at every point. And salvation is entirely a matter of God's actions god is free to do what he wants with who he wants at whatever time he wants and he does and i think it's just hard for those who perhaps have grown up in the church who have been a lifelong christian because it's humbling because we have to realize that you know we're not worthy because we've been serving god for some length of time rather it's simply a privilege if we have known christ from our earliest days then be thankful to god it doesn't earn you any brownie points before God, but you should be thankful for that privilege to know him longer, to have the joy of living in relationship with him. But at the end of your life, you're no more worthy of special commendation than the next person. It's not as if we can expect that we'll impress God. I'm really impressed with your flawed efforts for you know a few years more than that last person. I mean, think of your life in the time span that is eternity. You know, Our lives are a blip. And so your blip is half a blip longer than the next person and you want to take credit for that before God. When we think about it in those terms, it's just nonsense. And so we need to realize that as we serve Christ as our master, it is our privilege, it's our duty. We're merely his servants. We're not to look for credit. Jesus addresses this very issue elsewhere too in Luke. In Luke 17 verses 7 to 10, he teaches in a very short parable. 
And his parable concludes this way in verse 10. We'll come up on the screen. So you also, when you have done everything that you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. This is the bottom line as we come pitiful with nothing in our hands before the cross, totally dependent upon God's grace. That's the right response. Now, as you look at this parable, people have said, well, it can apply to different things as we think about this principle. Maybe it's, you know, the Jews versus the Gentiles. Uh, the vineyard was often a picture of the nation of Israel. And so those who went into God's vineyard at 6 a.m., well, they're the Israelites. You know, and those 11th hour, uh, Johnny come lately, well, they're the Gentiles that have been grafted into God's work of salvation. And so the Jews would look down on the Gentiles in the early church for that reason and say, well, you know, we're superior to them. We've known the law We've been following God for so long. Well, yes, that may be a principle that can apply there. But notice the text doesn't explicitly say that. And as we've already seen, it could apply to the new Christian versus the older Christian. It could also apply to the first disciples versus anyone that followed them. Remember, we all started this discussion because of Peter, who said, well, what's in it for us, Jesus? As if they should have preeminence because they were the 12 apostles. And Jesus goes on to tell them this parable and says it's not about merit, Peter. Everyone's the same before God. It's a flat, level playing field. The parable warns us that priority in time means little. Priority in time means little. And secondly, there's another principle that comes out of this. This equality of salvation more broadly. You notice the parable puts emphasis on the truth that God acts sovereignly here towards people, regardless of you know, what they've done. As the landowner goes down to the people in the marketplace, does he pick out those that have lived a better life first and comes back to those that haven't been so good? No, we're not told any of that. He just randomly chooses people who are waiting there. It doesn't matter really whether we've lived a good life in the eyes of this world or not. But that's the tendency, isn't it, in the human race? We like to think in terms of salvation um, that it's all about justice. We want to put it in legal terms. And so the common heresy for humanity is that people get to heaven because they're good. They deserve it. They deserve eternal life. They've earned it. The Bible makes it clear over and over and over again that we're all sinners, that we all fall short of God's perfect standard. Romans 3.23, for all fall short of the glory of God. And the result is no one can claim that they are deserving of salvation. Rather, what we see in this parable is that God sovereignly keeps picking people out of the marketplace of life and sending them to serve in his kingdom when no one should be picked. No person deserves the reward of eternal life. In fact, if heaven was dependent on merit, then heaven will be empty. If it's the case right now, there's no one there. God doesn't treat us on the basis of justice. We're fortunate that he doesn't. It's a fact that forgiven sinners have to be grateful for. What God does do is act patiently and mercifully towards people that are undeserving of his mercy. He holds back his judgment when it really should fall on us. Let me give you an example, 
a tragic but comic one of what justice looks like, true justice, uh, from a story that took place in the 1980s in the Czech Republic. Uh, there was a lady there named Vera Zermak uh, who'd been married for many years to her husband. And she discovered um, towards the end of their lives that he had been cheating on her for many years in a long-term relationship and she was devastated. She'd been betrayed all these years. She thought about taking her life. She didn't want to be thought of a bad person. She cleaned all of her unit that day as she thought over these things. She stocked up the fridge so that everything would look normal and right as she contemplated what she was going to do next. And eventually, by the end of the day, she got up the courage to jump out of their third-story window. She had no clue what was happening below, no thought as she did that. She survived the fall because she landed on a person. She only had minor injuries and recovered in hospital in the next couple of days. But the person she landed on who was just returning home was her husband, and he died. Justice was served. We don't like a story like that because we think, <laughs> that could happen to me. We recoil at the idea that anyone is deserving of God's judgment falling in that way, literally. <laughs> we don't think that somebody deserves to be punished, to die for their sin. But I want to say to you tonight that I'm going to die and you're going to die because of your sin. That's the teaching of the Bible. From the point of the fall in Genesis 3, entry of death into our world and it's because of our sin whether you die at the age of 20 or at 90 comfortably in your bed it's because of your sin that you'll die god's word tells us romans 6 23 for the wages of sin is death see when we think about it we don't want god's justice god's justice means that his judgment's going to fall heavily on each one of us and it's not what we long for at all. As we rail against the injustices of the world, we don't truly want justice when we think hard enough. You see, if we got justice, we'd all be eternally separated from God. We'd be cast out of his presence forever. We're rebels. We're undeserving of his offer of salvation. But what we wonderfully receive from God, what he offers us, offers to us in his son the lord jesus is mercy is grace a good way to think about the difference between these terms of justice and mercy and grace is as follows justice is getting what you deserve mercy is not getting what you deserve grace is getting what you do not deserve being given something See, this parable emphasizes God's grace, his unmerited, his undeserved kindness, that he would forgive sinners, indeed, that he would give them the hope of eternal life. He calls us into his kingdom to serve him, promises us a wonderful future. We don't deserve his forgiveness. We can't earn it. Neither can we therefore think that we're deserving of entering God's heaven, but out of grace he gives both. And that's the wonder of the gospel. That is the good news that we cling to if we're a Christian. Now, I know many of you will have heard and thought about grace many times. But I think the reality, the sharpness of God's word sometimes recedes into the background on such an important word. We use it so loosely. We use it all the time. We know it's important. 
but it's not something in the forefront of our mind to be thankful for our heart to be filled with gratefulness moment by moment about what God has done in his forgiveness of you and I, a wretch. You know, the former slave trader John Newton was someone who never lost, lost sight of it. He wrote that most famous of hymns, Amazing Grace. Because in his own words, he lived a terrible life. You know, getting people, enslaving them, acting in a brutal way towards people that were under his control. But when God intervened in his life and brought him to faith, he was someone who lived moment by moment so aware of God's undeserved kindness to him. Expressed in that hymn, but often in his sermons, he became a pastor and was a powerful force in England in the later years of his life. But he said one day to a group of people about his consciousness of God's grace to him. He said, when I get to heaven, I shall see three wonders there. The first of which is that I will see many people that I did not expect to be present. The second wonder in heaven, will there be many people who are missing who I thought would be there? And the third wonder is that I will see myself there. Well, there's a man who humbly understood his place before God, despite all the wonderful things he did in the back half of his life. See, every Christian is just a sinner, a sinner saved by grace. There's no way that our salvation as a result can be viewed as due to our efforts or worth. It's such a hard thing for us to keep in the forefront of our minds because our world keeps pumping us up in our secular Western society that you are worth it because you're so good, you're so important, you rise above whatever the struggles are. We need to keep coming back to the truth that a human life has worth only because God has given it worth. It has worth because we are made in his image firstly and doubly if he has bought us with the blood of his son. And that is why, out of his grace, all the glory goes to him and none of it to us. Look, if you're here tonight as a believer, I want to encourage you as you start 2018 to be reflecting on God's graciousness to you. I want you to be someone in this next year, as I hope to be myself, who's just overflowing with a grateful heart. You know, as I've come back from Bangladesh, the thing that struck me, amongst other things, is the thankfulness of people who know they have nothing but Christ. We've got an awful lot more in our society, and that's usually baggage that's a hindrance to us. And if you're someone who doesn't know where you stand with Jesus tonight, I want to encourage you. Maybe God is calling you back to him. Maybe tonight's the night to consider his undeserved kindness to you. I'd encourage you to talk to someone. Maybe they'll be surprised if you talk to them because they thought you were fine. They're expecting to see you in heaven, but you know that you, you haven't made business with God, that you don't know where you stand with Christ. Well, please speak up if that's the case. Don't let that lie. Talk to someone about God's work through his son and that simple sense of giving up on yourself and entrusting yourself fully to Jesus. It's the most wonderful, it's the most powerful step that you'll ever take. Let me pray for us. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for your wonderful word to us, of your graciousness to sinners. 
oh Lord, we really only have to think for a few moments as we dig deeper that the eternal life that you promise simply cannot be on the basis of merit. Lord, so often that trips us up. So often we go back to reliance on thinking that we're earning our way. Lord, help us not to fall into this trap, but to hear from Jesus afresh these words that he said to his first disciples, that it's all about your gracious sovereign action, drawing people in to serve in your vineyard, and that there's no one that has advanced standing, for we're all saved totally by your grace. Lord, we thank you for it. Uh, grant us grateful hearts in this year ahead, we ask. In Christ's name we pray. Please stand as we sing our next song. Jesus paid it all. And I think if you...